3 Z 92.3 FM The following program is in English. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series with your host, Morris Klein, and yes, he is still my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom, Shalom. Welcome to the second installment of the Lachaim 2 Life, Jewish Life and More Summer Series. As I mentioned last week, Team Lachaim is officially on Chofesh, taking a break until February 9th. So we are presenting the Lachaim Summer Series, featuring interviews from the Lachaim year that was 2021 with many of our excellent guests. There's been much concern in both our Jewish community and the broader community on the bias at the national broadcaster, the ABC. We have four interviews tonight with guests from Lachaim 2021 discussing the ABC bias. In particular, the ABC's very hostile bias against Israel. Now, before we hear about the ABC bias, I'd like to send a big shout out to Walter Bingham in Jerusalem, who turned 98 today. Walter Bingham, MM, is a British-Israeli journalist, actor, entrepreneur, Holocaust survivor, and decorated World War II veteran. He made Aliyah to Israel in 2004. At age 98, Walter is Israel's oldest working journalist. He also holds the Guinness World Record as the oldest radio talk show host. Walter presents the Walter Bingham File on Israel News Talk Radio and Walter's World on Jair. Walter was an absolute delight when he was my guest on Shabbat Shalom. And let me tell you with all sincerity, I love Walter's work and programs. Yomalet it, Walter. Bizahindrit and Svansik. Okay, time to hear about the hostile to Israel ABC bias on the Lachaim Summer Series here on 92.3 FM. Three triple Z. But first, let's hear the news from Jerusalem, courtesy of Israel News Talk Radio. I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. Israel National News reports security forces carried out mapping work on Tuesday in preparation for the demolition of the house of the Hamas terrorist who carried out the November shooting attack in Jerusalem's old city in which Eli Kay was murdered. Public broadcasting says the operations ended without any incidents. Security forces demolished a number of unauthorized structures on Tuesday morning in the Sumerian Jewish community of Chomesh and removed a number of tents used by supporters who recently took up residence there in support of the community following last month's terror murder of a Chomesh yeshiva student and the wounding of two others as they left the community. The forces also dismantled the electrical network set up years ago to serve the yeshiva. It was the second demolition carried out at the outpost since the terror attack. Samaria Council Chairman Yossi Dagan slammed the action noting that the government had yet to demolish the homes of the terrorists who carried out that shooting. The Jewish press reports terrorists hurled rocks from a passing vehicle at Jews who were traveling on Route 55, the Trans-Samaria Highway, on Monday near the community of Ma'ale Shomron. There were no injuries, but the vehicle was damaged. Similar attacks have been fatal. A city bus was firebombed Monday night near Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. The driver suffered light wounds. Arucheva reports Defense Minister Benny Gantz will meet soon with Interior Minister Ayala Chaked and member of Knesset Nir Orbach from her Yamina party on the issue of so-called young settlements. Gantz rejected criticism of his recent meeting with Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas on Monday, saying it involves security and vowing to continue meeting with the PA leader. 
Foreign Minister Yair Lapid said that he would have no problem meeting with Abbas, but there is no justification at this stage. Lapid told reporters in a Zoom briefing that the government's policy of not holding final status in negotiations with the PA will remain in place when he is scheduled to become prime minister in August 2023. He warned that Israel will face unprecedented campaigns to label it an apartheid state and remove it from international sporting and cultural events this year. Lapid noted that the United Nations Human Rights Council's permanent commission of inquiry into Israel's treatment of Arabs has an annual budget of $5.5 million with 18 staffers, while the commission looking into the Syrian civil war has a budget of about $2.5 million and 12 staffers. The foreign minister continued sparring with Iranian counterpart Hossein Amir Abdullahian on Twitter Tuesday, saying the Islamic Republic will continue to fail in its attempts to annihilate Israel, noting Iran's domestic problems. Amir Abdullahian wrote, Zionism has no place in the future of the world after Lapid said that renewed talks on Iran's nuclear program were not likely to end well for Israel. On Monday, Tehran and its puppets continued to observe the second anniversary of the United States drone attack that killed Commander Qasem Soleimani of the Revolutionary Guards Goods Force. Tehran holds the U.S. and Israel responsible. President Abraham Raisi said that former U.S. President Donald Trump and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo must face trial for the killing under the Islamic law of retribution or Muslims would take revenge. Hackers targeted the websites of the Jerusalem Post and Ma'ariv on Monday, posting an image with English and Hebrew threats against Israel's Demona nuclear facility. Iran's Tasnim News Agency, associated with the Guard Corps, launched a Hebrew website on Monday claiming other outlets are being fed censored and manipulated news. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah attacked the U.S. for the Soleimani killing and for its support of Israel. The health ministry announced Tuesday that Israel registered more than 10,000 new coronavirus cases on Monday, 5.5% of those tested. The total approached September's all-time record. Deputy Foreign Minister Don Roll is quarantining, having been confirmed with the virus on Tuesday, days after he was documented dancing maskless at a crowded New Year's Eve party. Roll underwent a coronavirus test on Monday night after his partner, singer Harel Ska'at, was exposed to a confirmed carrier during one of his performances. The Times of Israel says Foreign Ministry Director General Alon Ushpiz told a Zoom briefing with Israeli journalists that Israel has temporarily shuttered several diplomatic missions around the world because of COVID-19 infections. As of Monday, that included Israel's consulate in San Francisco and its embassies in Angola and the Philippines. The government is set to change the testing policies in the next few days to allow a large use of the antigen tests and solve problems of overcrowding at testing stations. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. The ABC, our national broadcaster, has been in the news again lately, with much criticism of the station's political bias against conservative politics. It's been hot stuff with former Victorian Liberal President Michael Kroger having a good crack at the ABC chair Ida Buttrose. I watched Kroger live on Sky News get stuck in the buck rose, and I loved it. As far as I'm concerned, Michael Kroger was absolutely on point. Today on L'Chaim, we're going to be talking about another, in my view, and that of many in our Jewish community, ABC bias. That is the very hostile bias against Israel. I'm delighted to have Victorian Senator, Senator David Van, join us today on L'Chaim to discuss the ABC Israel reporting. Senator Van is a great friend of the Jewish community. George and I would like to take this opportunity to publicly acknowledge Senator Van's valuable assistance with JS successful acquisition of its own FM broadcast licence, 88FM. Simply put, if it was not for Senator David Van, JR would have been off air from November 2020. Senator David Van, welcome to Lachaim. 
Thank you so much, Morris. It's great to be here and, and to join you. Um, and while we're not on Jair today, I was very proud of the work I was able to do to, to make sure that that great outlet uh, for the community stayed on air. So uh, thank you for acknowledging that. Once, once again, thank you for all your um, all your invaluable es efforts. Senator Van, for medical reasons, I stopped watching the ABC years ago. <laughs> I had to because it was making me sick to my stomach. Every time Israel was in the news or discussed, it was most disturbing and more. In my opinion, and that of most of the Jewish community, the ABC is undeniably biased, hostile and incendiary towards Israel. Let me quote uh, Chris Kenny recently uh, regarding the the recent uh, defence against Hamas. You'd swear Israel was the aggressor if you watched the ABC. Andrew Bolt recently wrote, the truth dies fast when Israel is under attack. I would add the truth, truth about Israel dies the fastest on the ABC. Senator Van, what say you about the ABC reporting? Well, it, it was always disappointing to watch it during you know, this most recent conflict, but it, it, that's nothing new. We've, we've seen this reporting about, you know, from the ABC about Israel um, for as long as I can remember. And unlike you, I, I am a, quite an avid uh, ABC listener, more on radio than, than TV. Um, for as much reason, you know, there's, I like Sky and I like all the reporters that you just mentioned then, but, you know, I know what my side of politics is saying. I don't need to have that reinforced to me. So it's always good to be able to get that other view. But, you know, it's not just the ABC that, that are biased against Israel. I mean, we, we saw it across many newspapers, across um, a lot of other outlets. And there's just this bit that they miss, you know, that Israel is its own state. It has its own right to defend itself as does any other country. You know, can imagine you know, what the uh, outrage would be if thousands of rockets were raining down on, on my hometown, Melbourne, uh, you know, at any point in time. You know, the Australian Defence Forces would step up and they'd, they'd do everything they can to you know, protect the lives of civilians, but to take out that threat. And that's what, what armies are uh, designed to do. And I, I think how Israel did that, the, the regard that they had for civilian lives, um, and the regard that they had for the threat for civilians on both sides of the, the Gaza border, uh, it, it, I think they, they deserve to be applauded, not uh, for being ridiculed. Uh, so true, so true. Just, uh, I want to quote um, a recent item, Emily Clark, Friday the 14th, an attempt to explain why explosions are again filling the skies over Israel. I've printed off four pages here. I'm not going to read out the four pages, but just briefly. In 1948, the State of Israel was founded. The Arab nations of the region, including Jordan and Egypt, refused to recognize it, and five Arab nations attacked Israel. Mm -hmm. The new Israeli armed forces, well, really, they were just uh, uh, cobbled together in a short Malika. time, conquered yeah. more territory, conquered, conquered more territory than envisaged by the UN vote, including the western half of Jerusalem. The petition and subsequent war resulted in the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Most of those Palestinians were told to leave by the Arab world. We're going to kick the Jews out into the ocean, and it was an ex existential war. But uh, many were forced from their homes, and their property was seized by Israelis. A much smaller number of Jews were displaced, mostly from East Jerusalem. Interesting. In the next war, 1967, Israel extended control further, pushing Jordan, Syria, and Egypt, back to take over the rest of Jerusalem surrounding the West Bank, as well as Gaza, as well as the Gaza Strip, Golan Heights and the Syrian border. No mention 
the 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 massing of the Egyptian and Jordanian and other uh, Arab nations, uh, Lebanon and Iraq, uh, massing up against Israel's border, vastly outnumbering Israel. Again, with another attempt at an, ex- at an existential war. This was Israel defending itself, and Israel has had to defend itself time and time again. That's just, a, 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 to me, a, a classic example of what goes on at the ABC. It's, it's tenden- tendentious dishonesty. I've been a, just a volunteer presenter on JR for, was for six and a half years, now with uh, the team here on 3ZZZ, Ethnic Community Radio. I've come to learn how easy it is to, to edit things and spin things. I don't do it, but, you know, I come to realise um, what journalism is all about. And, and, and um, it's died. It's, honest journalism has died. Yeah. And it's, what I'd love to see is that some of these uh, journalists that criticise Israel actually go there and, and, and see for themselves what the situation is. Um, it was one of the last trips I did before COVID uh, locked us into the country. I, I was there last in December 19. And you know, it, what, the thing that struck me most was just how different it is from what you read and you see in the media back here in Australia. You know, the life that goes on time and time again, it, it, it's the, the, the word I keep on using when I'm describing things about what I saw there was proximity. It's about how close you know, everyone is to, to, together. Know, how close Gaza is to townships, um, you know, standing in a, uh, in a, a kid's playground. And, you know, we're looking at this extraordinary piece of play uh, equipment. It was this big, long snake, big, long concrete snake. And uh, one of the uh, other senators I was there with kind on it, they said, oh, no, no, that's not a play toy. That's a, that's a rocket bunker. That's for the kids so the kids can get in there safely. So it only takes 15 seconds. We only have 15 seconds warning to get undercover. So, you know, there is just this disregard for the, the actual truth of what's going on there. And you go, one of the other things that really struck me when I was there was, you know, you go to some of the Palestinian-controlled um, cities, like Ramallah, Bethlehem, uh, and we were taken uh, by Palestinians into to there too, and we were shown the, the refugee camps. And I'm walking around Ramallah, and there's these, you know, beautiful high-rise, you know, it looks like a wealthy city. Any other city in the world, you go, this is a really wealthy city. Then you see these slums, you know, like these old-fashioned, you know, 50, 60-year-old apartment blocks that are falling down. And, you think, and they point to them and go, oh, that's the refugee camp. And I ask the question, why don't you just move the, the Palestinians in that block of apartments into that block of apartments, which are a lot nicer? Oh, no, no, we can't do that because, you know, you know they have a right to go back to their homes. Give them a better home. You know, it, it, they, these are rich cities. These cities are doing incredibly well. Now, are they in the world's top 10 cities? No. Um, but, you know, these are the, the wealth that was quite visible there. And, you know, I challenge anyone to, to go there and have a look for themselves. It's, you know, it's such a, a wonderful place. The other thing that really struck me was particularly in Jerusalem. You know, you're walking down streets, you know, you've got a Jewish owned shop next to a, 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 an Arab shop and, Everyone's sitting out the front, chatting with each other, getting on. For the most part, most of the people living in Israel, I saw, were, were living in peace side by side. You know, it's only when these flare-ups happen, you know, when you know the, that uh, you know you, you ever hear about you know the, the the difficulties in between them. But from what I saw with my own eyes, people are really happy living side by side in Jerusalem. Um, absolutely, uh, it is uh, an amazing city. Amazing um, indeed. Uh, precious to uh, 
three-fifths of the world. But you mentioned, you just mentioned there, you wish the journalists would go to Israel and experience it. The ABC Middle East correspondent, Sophie McNeil, she was there for years, Tom Joyner. Um, really, they present slanted, slanted reports on just about everything. And as I said, uh, every time I watch them, it, it, it really... Uh, uh, it really brought on a bit of <laughs> made me nauseous most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even most recently, there was a peace rally uh, in the Jewish community held a peace rally in um, in Caulfield. Mm-hmm. The ABC gave it about ten seconds and downplayed the uh, the numbers there. Um, it, it really is. It really has a, a, a hostility towards the the, yeah. the truth uh, when it comes to Israel. Yeah, um, what can be done about that? Well, we uh, we have this mechanism in in Parliament called Senate Estimates, um, and most uh, most times, and we just finished two weeks of it, um, the the budget sessions, and uh, most times I have the opportunity to put questions like this to the managing director and the, uh, the senior management of um, of the ABC. Um, you know, they tell me to my face that there is no bias, but I haven't put these Israel questions to them. Um, but I, I promise you and your listeners, if I'm still on that committee uh, next round of estimates, I, I will be putting those questions loud and clear. Outstanding. And I just want, before we uh, uh, conclude this little interview, and really appreciative of you uh, joining us, there is a uh, an item on the front page of the Australian Jewish News headline, Distorting Reporting. Journalism students taught not to be objective on in, on Israel. And it's a full one-page um, uh, one page editorial. I exhort uh, everyone to check it out. That's the way of the future. Our young kids are, are being indoctrinated, simply indoctrinated in our campuses and our varsities. Uh, it's a frightening situation. Yeah, I, I have a very good um, relationship with uh, all or most, if not all, of the, the vice chancellors of the Victorian universities. Uh, try to work very closely with them, and you know I try and re- you know when there's evidence of this going on, they're they're very happy to learn about it and try and fix it. So if you have things like that that you can send through to me, I'll, I I promise you I, I I will raise it. Well, this particular journalism school was in in New South Wales University of Technology, Sydney. Senator Van, I, I really George and I are so appreciative of the work you um, you did for the Jewish community with in respect to JA's license. Um, thank you sincerely for joining us again on Lechaim and love to have you back on again in the not too distant future. Anytime you want me. Now, one thing I'm going to put my own little plug in here, if you'll uh, indulge Please me. Please do. Um, uh, myself and uh, some of my uh, parliamentary colleagues, both state and federal, started a, a group called the Liberal Friends of Israel. Um, and it's uh, like-minded people, people who have conservative values, who value Israel um, and if you go to liberalfriendsofisrael.com.au, you can join up there. We send out plenty of, uh, of events and we do either um, Zoom events or live ones when we're allowed to with COVID. Um, so any of your listeners that, are, that are, um, see themselves as friends of Israel, um, please come and join us with the Liberal Friends of Israel. Thank you. Terrific. Absolutely. That's a must. That's a must. Senator David Van, thanks again. Thanks, gentlemen. Jamie Hyams has always been very much a community-minded person. He served four terms as a councillor on the Glen Ira City Council and was mayor three times. He's on the board of the Glen Ira Adult Learning Centre and has had a long association with Maccabi Victoria.
He has appeared on Sky News and is a staff writer for the Australia Israel Review. Jamie is a senior policy analyst at the Australia Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, also known as AJAC, where he has worked since 2000. Jamie, welcome to Lachayim. Could you give our audience an overview of the Australia Israel and Jewish Affairs Council and then tell us what your role as a senior policy analyst entails? Sure. So the Australia Israel and Jewish Affairs Council, we regard ourselves as Australia's prime Jewish public affairs organisation or, or think tank. So we, we try to put out accurate information and important information about matters of concern to the Jewish community, whether that be Israel, um, what's going on in the Middle East, anti-Semitism, racism in Australia, um, and various other issues of concern to the, the Jewish community. We bring over speakers when we can, obviously not so much during COVID. We take groups to Israel, again, not so much during COVID. We put out a, the magazine you mentioned, the Australia's Round Review. We also have a, a website. So we basically do what we can to get accurate information out there. My role as senior policy analyst, everyone sort of does a bit of everything, so I do a bit of writing. Um, and in fact, I had articles in the Sydney Morning Herald in the age yesterday about the ABC and the need for an independent compliance procedure and also contribute to the review. I do a bit of research and, and various other things. I take the groups to Israel and, you know, sort of just chipping on the general activities that we do. And it's a very interesting and at times frustrating, but generally rewarding job. Well, thanks, Jamie. That was certainly very informative. If we could now focus on the trauma and truth-telling episode of the ABC program Q&A, which sure. screened in May this year mm-hmm. and featured a segment focusing on the Israel-Hamas conflict. From your perspective, how did the segment tell the truth about the conflict and perhaps you could start with the panel's composition and follow up with some of the supposed truths. Sure well what it mainly told the truth about was the way the ABC puts together the show Q&A because it does have a history of being fairly tilted but this was an extreme example what you had in a show that was advertised as being in part about the Israel-Hamas conflict that occurred last May. What you had was Randa Abdul Fattah, who is a pro-Palestinian activist. She regards herself as Palestinian. She's a, a very staunch activist for the cause. You also had Jennifer Robinson, who is a human rights lawyer who has appeared for Palestinians before the International Criminal Court. Then you had Ed Husick, who's a Labor member of federal parliament. And there was Mitch Tambo, who's an Indigenous musician who doesn't know much about the, the Palestinian conflict, as you mentioned during the show. And to balance all that, we had one person who was Dave Sharma, who is a federal MP on the Liberal side. So he was basically there to counter or to, to balance, I guess, Ed Houston. They had him, and he's a former Australian ambassador to Israel, and he's knowledgeable about the matter. But as he himself said during the program, he wasn't there to put Israel's case. Now, the program also claimed that they invited the acting Israeli ambassador, Pallet, to appear on the show. But what they actually offered him to do was sit in the audience and perhaps ask a question. So, of course, he refused, as any ambassador would. So what you had was an incredibly biased panel. You had, especially Randa Adolf Adder, was prepared to, to make all sorts of ridiculous claims about Israel being an apartheid state and deliberately killing civilians and all sorts of things like that. And when Dave Sharma tried to put the other side quite moderately and reasonably, you know, she tried to talk all over the top of him and tell him he was lying, whereas, in fact, she was the one who was saying things that weren't true. And um, Hamish McDonald wasn't really trying to rein her in, as, as a host probably should have been doing. Ed Husick said that he felt Australia should recognise a Palestinian state, so you know, he was obviously taking that side as well. And Mitch Tambo admitted he didn't know much about it, but felt that Israel should stop killing Palestinians. And then you had Jennifer Robinson, who was backing up everything that Randa Adolf Adler was saying. So it was incredibly slanted. Dave Sharma justifiably felt uncomfortable being cast as the Israel representative when he's a member of our federal parliament. So who he's representing is the government of Australia, not the government of Israel. For those of you who didn't see that particular episode of Q&A, it can be easily found on the internet. 
and uh, it reveals an astonishing level of anti-Israel bias within Australia's national broadcaster. What was AJAC's response to the program and how did the ABC deal with it? Well, we put in a complaint. The ABC has a complaints procedure. It's called its um, Audience and Consumer Affairs Unit. It's internal to the ABC, so it's not independent by any means, and that probably explains the response we got. So we put in the complaint, and the main the main thrust of our complaint, if you like, was that the ABC hadn't abided by its code of conduct, which it's meant to abide by in its news and current affairs. And one of the things in there, one of the provisions in there says that the ABC should not unduly favour any perspective over any other perspective. And so we argued with obvious cause that they had, in fact, favoured one perspective over the other. Audience and Consumer Affairs came back to us quite quickly, which suggests they already had something you know, written up and said that they hadn't unduly, and they emphasised the word unduly, favoured one perspective over another. They had a couple of people in the audience asking pro-Israel questions, which, of course, the panel could say anything they wanted to about. And they mentioned that Acting Ambassador Pallet had been asked, and they thought that, that Dave Sharma responded very well to the question. So, you know, this is clearly untenable. They've clearly breached their code of practice. They're clearly not prepared to admit they've breached their code of practice, and they've clearly illustrated why the complaints procedure needs to be independent. How do you see the ABC in general in the way that it covers issues related to Israel? The ABC in general tends to be quite biased against Israel. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a good example. You know, they've got correspondence over there, a good recent example. They cover the controversy over the house demolition in Sil 1, where a Palestinian house has been demolished by Israeli authorities and it was built without authorisation. At the same time, roughly the same time, there was a really big story going on in the Palestinian Authority areas where a anti palestinian authority activist was arrested by Palestinian Authority police and he was arrested in a very violent way and he ended up dying of his injuries within an hour or so of being arrested. And there were huge demonstrations about that. And the ABC covered it sort of tangentially on news radio, but certainly it wasn't covered by their correspondent in their flagship news programs like AM and PM in the same way that the house demolition in Sil 1 was the controversy over the potential eviction of Palestinian residents in Sheikh Jarrah, you know, and all sorts of things that happen that favour the, the ABC's narrative on Israel, but, but are of much less significance than what was going on in the Palestinian Authority. Uh, we found that during the, the Hamas-Israel conflict, the ABC's coverage was very slanted, so they might have said the right thing occasionally, you know, but they certainly presented the Palestinian perspective far more, and, and pro-Palestinian guests appeared far more often on their shows. That's it in a nutshell. That is how the ABC overall tends to approach the conflict. So, you know, we, we may get some of our people on ABC radio occasionally and they'll cover, you know, if, if you listen hard enough, they will make most of the relevant points some of the time, but they certainly make the points that favour the Palestinian narrative from the Palestinian perspective far more often than those that favour the Israeli side. Mm. You mentioned earlier that you had an opinion piece in yesterday's age, and it was also in the Sydney Morning Herald, yeah. on the process the ABC has to deal with complaints. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us briefly what that process is and are there examples of other countries handling complaints in a different way, a more effective way? Yeah, well, the process is they have their their ANCA, their Audience and and Customer Affairs Department or unit, and they say it's independent. What they don't say so often is that it then reports back to ABC management, so it's not independent. Quite a lot of complaints, as the ABC itself acknowledges, are sent straight back to the program and the program deals with them if, if they consider the complaints to be minor. Those complaints that are dealt with by ANCA, they obviously they refer it back to the journalist or the, the producer who produced the content in the first place, and then they'll make a finding of whether they agree that it complies with the code of practice or not. And in the vast majority of cases, they find that it did comply with the code of practice. Now, we, we find that unsatisfactory. We think it should be independent. Like There's a lot of... And not because the ABC is a media unit, but because the ABC is, is funded by the taxpayers. 
So, you know, unlike the, the commercially owned newspapers, television stations, radio stations and so on, the ABC is funded by the taxpayer, so it is accountable to the taxpayer to make sure that it does comply and adhere to its code of practice. So we think there should be an independent body in place, the same way there's a telecommunications ombudsman or, or a banking ombudsman or, or all sorts of different types of um, independent accountability organisations. There should be one for the ABC as well. Now, other countries have done this sort of thing, countries like Canada, the Netherlands, some of the Scandinavian countries have done something like that. A lot of, you know, th- those are the countries that have their own government-funded broadcaster the same way the ABC is. So, you know, if you don't like the ABC's findings from A, from a and CA at the moment, you can appeal it to ACMA, the Australian Communications Media Authority, and they can issue a finding. They're not as well-resourced as they could be. It does take them a long time to, to come back with anything. And on occasions when they've come back with a finding against the ABC, the ABC has printed a little note and then put out a statement saying, we disagree with the actual finding. And that's it. So, you know, we want something that not only is independent and quite rigorous and can possibly even launch own source investigations rather than waiting for a complaint like the Victorian Ombudsman, for example, but we also want it to have real teeth so that if the ABC is found to have transgressed, then there are consequences to make sure it doesn't do it again. Because one other thing we found from the ABC's internal complaints process is that the finding can be made in our favour. For example, there was a finding made that it was incorrect for the ABC to call Gaza occupied. And then, you know, a little while later, a couple of years later, they did the same thing again. So we complained again. And the, the finding came back that, no, it was okay for them to say that because that's what the United Nations said. So, you know, they're not even bound, bound by their own findings. Yes. How are the panels in the overseas countries uh, constituted? Who appoints them? That, that I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. It'd be interesting to know. Yeah, I mean, you'd want, you'd certainly want it to be, you wouldn't want them to start appointing people like, you know, former employees of the ABC who are still, <laughs> um, you know, who are still loyal to the ABC. You'd want it to be appointed at arm's length, preferably by, not by the ABC, but by the government or an independent body and make sure that these are people who have expertise in journalism, but are also completely um, neutral and independent mm. and, and objective, I guess, is the main thing. Yes. Uh, in a world of increasing anti-Israel bias, Ajax's role is even more important today and it deserves the community's full support. Jamie, thank you so much for appearing on Lafayette. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're tuned in to the Lachaim Summer Series on 92.3 FM triple ZZZ, three triple Z, that's the one. With your host, Morris Klein, and yes, he is still my baby brother. Joining us tonight on Lachaim is Peter Wertheim, co-CEO of the ECAJ, the Executive Council of Australian Jury. Peter, welcome to Lachaim, to life. Thank you, Morris. It's a pleasure to be here. Peter, please, for our new Lachaim listeners, what is the ECAJ all about? What's its raison d'etre? Okay, well, in every state in Australia, there is a Jewish communal roof body. In New South Wales, it's the Jewish Board of Deputies. In Victoria, it's the JCCV. There's one in every other state as well, and also in the ACT. And they deal with all the state issues, state government, local issues, and so on. Each of those roof bodies is in turn affiliated to a national body, which is the Executive Council of Australian Jury. They elect councillors to our body, and we deal with all the national issues and international issues, anything to do with uh, interrelationships with the, the federal government, federal politicians, and so on. So the ECAJ effectively is the national roof body. 
We also have under our umbrella other national uh, Jewish organisations such as National Council of Jewish Women, WITSO, Joint Distribution Committee of Australia, Maccabi, Orgers and so on. So it is a truly national body. It's been around since 1944. It is as broadly representative as any national body around the world. And directly or indirectly, we have something like 200 major Jewish organisations under our umbrella. Schools, synagogues, women's organisations, sporting clubs, professional associations and so on. Excellent. It's the roof body of all roof bodies. Peter, the ECAJ complained to and met recently with the ABC Managing Director David Anderson and his Chief of Staff Michael Rippon to discuss the ABC's hostile anti-Israel coverage, in particular a recent Q&A program about Israel's Operation Guardian of the Walls, defensive war against over 4,000 Hamas rockets, a Q&A program that can only be described as a gang up on Israel. And Jews, Peter, could you please outline the nature of the complaint to the ABC and how the meeting went? Okay, I'll start with the second question. I mean, the meeting was very friendly. There was no tension there at all. Uh, the managing director uh, was quite open and frank about shortcomings in the coverage and in the Q&A program, the fact that there was no Jewish community representative voice, the fact that uh, the majority of the panellists uh, were on one side of the debate and only Dave Sharma, who is not there as a representative of the Jewish community, uh, was on the other side of the debate, so it was really four against one. And uh, you know, Dave Sharma, as a former Australian ambassador to Israel, certainly knows his stuff and did a creditable job, but it, it was um, a stack. It can't be described as anything but that. And whilst the Palestinians had a, you know, their own communal voice there and the supporting voice from a, a lawyer who was there and, and one other panellist as well who admitted he knew nothing about the issue but was on their side anyway, there was no Jewish communal voice at all. There were two questions asked from the audience. They were members of the Jewish community, but they weren't representative of any Jewish organisation. Um, in fact, a question had been scheduled to be asked by a representative from the Jewish Board of Deputies. She actually had a mic on her lapel all ready to ask a question, but she was passed over in favour of another one. And, and the result really was that the Jewish community got locked out. So that was the complaint and didn't seem to be any demur from uh, the managing director about that. There didn't seem to be any demur about many of the shortcomings in the news and current affairs coverage of the ABC of the Gaza conflict in May. In fact, there seemed to be a lot of concessions made about that, although that was subsequently denied. So more to the point, though, was what the purpose of the meeting was. It was to try to get some action and to get some steps taken to remedy some of these shortcomings so that they wouldn't recur. And uh, there were a number of concrete steps that were proposed uh, in confidence by the managing director himself, uh, which we, we thought were very constructive. And uh, we left the meeting quite hopeful that uh, there could be some progress on that score. And subsequently, of course, uh, you, you would have heard that uh, there was a different account of the meeting from the ABC. We stand by our account of the meeting. We're rather disappointed that taken that attitude and that the steps that were put forward to remedy some of the shortcomings uh, have now been put in, into abeyance. That's, that's a real pity. Yeah, that uh, different uh, view of the meeting from the ABC raises more questions. Uh, i just read from your ECHA media statement. The meeting was held in a very positive spirit. Mr Anderson was keen to explore specific constructive steps to prevent a recurrence of the problems we raised and improve the quality of the ABC's news coverage. ECHA President Gillian Siegel said after the meeting, despite the obvious difficulties, we secured a commitment for follow-up meetings and engagement with both key ABC staff and leadership and have reason to hope for a productive outcome. What were the obvious difficulties and do you still have the uh, hope for productive outcome? 
Well, the obvious difficulties are with the ABC's entrenched culture. Correct. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, that's what that's referring to. Uh, as to whether or not uh, we, we still have hope for uh, constructive steps being taken, well, we do. That really is in the hands of the ABC. We're willing to cooperate, but uh, ultimately uh, it, it seems to us that once word got out about the very fact of the meeting, the quite a number of uh, sources within uh, the ABC and beyond the ABC who are, shall we say, not friendly to Israel and, and not friendly to our community seem to, to react quite hysterical way just to the, the mere fact of the meeting, let alone the, the, any concessions that might have been made or remedies that might have been proposed. And I think from my point of view anyway, that's, uh, that's what accounts for the ABC's subsequent response, which was completely out of character with the tenor of the meeting. Well, in light of what you've just sort of indicated, do you think uh, David Anderson and Michael Rippon were genuine in their acknowledgement and apology? Or were they just going through the lip service motions? And has an apology been made on air by Q&A? And have you heard any more from the ABC's complaint unit? So firstly, I think David Anderson was absolutely genuine. I have no doubt about that. Good. Uh, Michael Rippon was just there uh, as a, an observer. He didn't say anything. As to whether we've heard anything further since then, no, we haven't. And uh, that is a great shame because Q&A as a program uh, has had its difficulties of late. Its viewership, which was once around a million, is now down to about 200,000. Well, it goes up and down, of course, but, you know, everybody, everybody acknowledges that the, uh, there's been a drastic decline and that even predates uh, Hamish MacDonald taking over the program last year. So, you know, he's now left and gone to another, uh, another media company and the problems remain unaddressed as far as we're concerned. And the deeper problems with, within the ABC as to its uh, general attitude of ignorance and bias against Israel, that's all I can describe it as, remains as bad as it was before and, and nothing's changed. And that, I think, is to the detriment of the ABC as an organisation. It's not just a matter of the interests of the Jewish community. I think this is uh, something that ultimately affects the quality of the ABC as an organisation and that affects all Australians. And Australia's uh, government-funded TV network, there's a lot of talk of uh, an independent ombudsman. No doubt the ECAJ would be supportive of that? Oh yes, uh, our president Julian Siegel uh, had a piece published in the Jewish News a couple of weeks ago where we made it very clear that, uh, that that's one thing that we think is now essential and she uh, drew attention to the fact that independent external complaints units are the rule for say, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the South African Broadcasting Corporation and the, here in Australia for SBS and for other government instrumentalities including the Australian Tax Office. They have a, an independent complaints unit too through an Inspector General. So this is not a radical proposal. It, it does seem to us, uh, and I think to most people in the Jewish community, that this is an essential reform that can't be delayed any longer. I'm not sure it would cure the underlying problem with the culture, but it certainly might have some influence on it. Peter, I'll move on from the ABC. The uh, ECAJ two weeks back hosted the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, via Zoom. And yes, Albo is a friend of the Jewish community in Israel. You pressed elbow on the two-state solution, which he supports, the BDS, which he's opposed to, and anti-Semitism with his concerns of the serious rise of anti-Semitism in Australia and universally. Could you please take us through some of the outcomes there? Well, firstly, let me say that this particular Zoom session was attended by some 70 Jewish communal leaders across Australia. You know, we invited everybody from both within our network, that is the state roof bodies and the other national Jewish organisations who come directly under our umbrella, but also other Jewish communal organisations, AJAC and ZFA, uh, and they had their representatives there as well. And by agreement, the Jewish News and JY were also there. So that was uh, an important uh, 
preliminary. And the other important preliminary was that um, Anthony Albanese and his team agreed that the meeting could be recorded and that the recording could be made available to everybody. And it's now freely available via the ECHA website. And I invite everybody who's interested to listen to it because there's nothing like making up your own mind based on what you, you hear yourself rather than getting it second hand. If only that had been possible with the ABC. <laughs> So uh, we, uh, we thought that Anthony Albanese made some extremely relevant and timely points about all of the issues that you've just uh, mentioned and made it very clear that the party as a whole is not held hostage by some of the more extreme elements who were responsible recently for an appalling resolution that was passed at the Queensland State Conference and which Penny Wong rejected the following day. And, and also those uh, such as Bob Carr who are pushing for a similar sort of motion at the upcoming New South Wales State Conference in October. So I thought that all of those points were well made, well articulated, and they were on the record. I mean, I don't think we could have asked for anything more than that. And the media coverage that followed, you know, from both sides of politics, you know, the centre-left and the centre-right media was entirely positive. Uh, as I think it should have been, because it was a, a moderate, sensible position that was being outlined by, uh, by Anthony Albanese on behalf of his party. So, again, I'd encourage everybody to listen to the, or to view, it was fully recorded, to view the, uh, the session and, and make up their own minds. Peter, as I indicated, you pressed Albo on his two-state solution, who that would be, who Israel's partners of peace would be. Mm. Albo didn't want to go into that, didn't want to discuss it, didn't want to discuss what it would look like. Uh, when I say partners of peace, Jew hating Hamas and uh, the PA, which is not much better. Uh, yet he didn't really want to go into that. Um, no discussion what a two-state solution would look like. You know, that sort of leaves it out, out in the open a bit. Well, I think there are two separate questions. One was the principle of a two-state solution. And he was clear that Palestine under any two-state solution would basically be the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and, and maybe some presence in um, the eastern part of Jerusalem. It wouldn't have to be exactly as it was before the 1967 war. I don't think he, he pegged himself to that at all. But, you know, essentially something along those lines. So I, I think he was, he was reasonably clear about that side of it. But then when I pressed him on the other aspect of ALP policy, which was about recognising a Palestinian state. Now, this is, this is something which I think needs a little more unpacking, and that's why I asked him about it. Most people don't seem to understand what recognising a state means. If Australia was to recognise a state of Palestine, it's essentially making a statement that a state of Palestine already exists. You can't recognise a state that doesn't exist. And if you do recognise Palestine, then you're actually making a statement that on the ground there is an entity that meets the description of a state and you're simply recognising that reality. That's, that's what recognition means. Now, that's a very different thing from saying there ought to be a Palestinian state as part of a negotiated two-state solution. Two entirely different propositions. And I don't think that difference is generally well understood. Uh, and that's why I pressed Anthony Albanese on it. And I said, well, OK, I understand you, you say that there ought to be a Palestinian state, you support a two-state solution, the details to be negotiated. Fair enough, that's orthodox. But when your party passes a resolution saying that a future Labor government should, as a priority, recognise a Palestinian state, that's, that's a different thing you're saying that there already is a Palestinian state. And what is it? Which entity is it that you're proposing to recognise? 
And of course, he parried the question, as you quite rightly pointed out. Uh, he said, well, look, that's going to be a matter for a future Labor government. In fact, the whole question of whether and when Australia under a Labor government would recognise the state of Palestine would, would have to be determined at the time, based on the conditions at the time, uh, and based on an assessment of whether it would make a contribution towards peace or not. And so he wouldn't be drawn on that question and he wouldn't be drawn on which entity would be recognised if that was the decision, because I guess he would say that the circumstances between now and then might change. But really, there's not really much to choose from there. And our position has always been, uh, in our writings and our articles and so on, there is no entity there that meets the description of a state, that neither the Palestinian Authority nor Hamas constitute a government that is capable of asserting its authority over the entire territory that the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Therefore, there is no state and there is nothing to recognise. You get no argument from me there, absolutely no argument, except the Olympic Committee's already recognised them. There was, I noticed there was a Palestinian contingent march out in the opening ceremony independently, not as part of the, as the uh, refugee contingent. Would the ECAJ consider registering a uh, bit of a concern there to the IAC here, the Australian Olympic Committee? <laughs> well, I don't think the Australian Olympic Committee would have made that decision. That would have been the International Olympic Committee. Yeah, sure. The concern should be directed, and I think it's a matter for the State of Israel to do that. On the other hand, I also noticed that at the opening ceremony, there was for the first time a moment of silence and recognition of the, uh, the murder of 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Games, which I, th I thought was a very decent and positive thing to do. So, you know, once again, it's uh, kind of a mixed story, isn't it? It is. It was very moving. I watched it and uh, shed yes. a tear. Peter, um, the rise of anti-Semitism was discussed with great concern, as always. Elbow mentions the far-right uh, extremism, also acknowledges the rise of left anti-Semitism. Um, you acknowledge the uh, far-right, the left, and religious sources. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you, we've run out of time, I was going to ask you to uh, please explain and identify the so-called religious sources you're referring to. But as I mentioned, we'll have to have you back. It's been, you've been a delight. Really thrilled that uh, you've joined us here on Lachaim. Noticeably, we weren't at the Zoom. We've only just been going a few weeks, this program. But I want to sincerely thank you for joining us on Lachaim. You've been very insightful. And please, let's have you back again. Yeah, it'll be my pleasure. And, um, yeah, I was just look referring mainly to Islamist. Uh, Good. There is still also a, re a residue, not, not common these days, of Christian anti-Semitism, yeah. but coming from a very narrow source. Good. Peter, thanks for joining us. Yasha Koyach to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Michael Gawenda AM began his career in journalism as a cadet with The Age newspaper just over 50 years ago. He was a senior editor with Time magazine, and was editor and editor-in-chief of The Age between 1997 and 2004. In 2009, Michael was appointed the inaugural director of the Centre for Advanced Journalism at the University of Melbourne. He is a three-time Walkley Award recipient and author of a number of books, most recently the biography of Mark Liebler, which was published last year. Michael, welcome to Lachaim. Thank you. Good to be here. Less than two weeks ago, John Lyons published a book titled Dateline Jerusalem, Journalism's Toughest Assignment. Lyons is a former senior reporter at the Australian newspaper, former editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and also a three-time Walkley winner. Since 2017, he has been the executive editor of ABC News, 
and Head of Investigative Journalism for the ABC. Michael, could you briefly summarise Lyons' argument as presented in his book? An extract of the book was published in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. So what's the argument? Firstly, I want to say this is not to denigrate the work, but it's not really a book. It's a pamphlet, really, uh, size. Probably, I'd be amazed if it was more than 10,000 words. It's probably less. It's an essay, really. Yeah, it's 96 pages, uh, apparently. Yeah, Yeah. 96 small pages. I mean, it's a very small book. Yeah. Um, What I'm saying with that is this is, you know, this is like an essay. This is like a long op-ed, in my view. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the thesis? I mean, the thesis is basically that there exists this Uh, a Jewish or Israeli lobby. Um, I think people who've heard of the lobby use a Jewish lobby and an Israeli lobby interchangeably, but we know what they're talking about. Uh, This lobby is basically well-funded with uh, significant staff and resources, and it has had a chilling effect on the coverage of the Israel-Palestinian issue over a long period of time, but uh, he experienced it personally uh, when he was the, the Middle East correspondent for The Australian. So the thesis is that the lobby has been powerful enough to make editors and correspondents self-censor so that significant issues of the conflict, especially pertaining to Israel's occupation of the West Bank and uh, what he calls the occupation of Gaza as well, has not been properly covered. So that's the thesis. Within a few days of that being published, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald published your opinion piece, which was a rebuttal of Lyons' premise. Could you tell our audience what your criticisms are of uh, his argument? Can I also say that uh, Plus61J published a review of The Lions yes. by Peter Frey, who's a former editor-in-chief of the Sydney Morning Herald, and a significant figure in Australian journalism. I think it's worth reading his review. I'm not saying he agreed with me exactly, but he more or less did. And uh, the, my argument was basically this, and I wanted to make it clear that for me this was not about the actual issue of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. I wasn't. And though he says his book is not about that, if you look at it carefully, it is about that in statements about the conflict and that that make clear where he's coming from on this. Some of the positions he puts I don't have any arguments with, others argue with. And so what we're talking about is not facts, but an interpretation of facts that I would not necessarily agree with. That was not meant to be the point of the book. The point of his book was that there exists this lobby that has had this chilling effect on the coverage of the Middle East. Now, my basic arguments were twofold. One, that he provides no evidence for that proposition at all. Mm. Uh, The editors that he does quote actually reject the claim that he's making. He talks to them about specific instances Uh, the publication of a particular cartoon in the Sydney Morning Herald, for instance, that the editor, in retrospect, says he wouldn't have, if he he had his time over, let alone apologised for it. So I I think there are no no incidents in his book that he can point to of editors that said that in their experience they either asked or pulled stories, particular stories, 
or slanted their coverage in any particular way because of the lobby's influence yep. and lobbying. Now, I, I make it clear in my, in my rebuttal, I think, that the lobby does actually lobby yeah. uh, uh, and it does it relentlessly and it can be over the top and it doesn't necessarily produce the way it lobbies it doesn't necessarily produce the outcomes that it wishes for. Yes. Uh, I think that's true. I think that I often, when I was editor of The Age, and I had dealings with AJAC or other people that were lobbyists, I often thought, you know, I shouldn't give you advice, but if I could give you advice, I, I would advise you to um, uh, to be moderate, more moderate in your criticism of what the paper has done, uh, to leave it open for debate, to to not criticise everything, every article. Um, but I never did that because that wasn't my job. So I can see the lobby is well organised and does the job that a lobby should do. But there's nothing sinister about that. No. There are lots of lobbies that operate like that, right? There is nothing hidden about what they do. In fact, in my book uh, on Libla, I go into some detail about how the lobby operates, who funds it, who runs it, uh, its resources, uh, everything about it. It's out in the open. There's nothing hidden about this. Mm. So I make that concession. But what was deeply troubling to me is the suggestion that it is possible in Australia for a lobby like this to be able to actually distort the coverage of a significant issue like the conflict between the Palestinians and Israel Mm. um, without providing significant evidence. I think on its face, in my view, it's an absurd proposition. And it is based on on a view, uh, I want to be careful here because I'm not suggesting, it is based on a view of Jewish power that I think is nonsensical, to say the least. Right. And that was what was most troubling to me. And it was troubling to me that, in the main, this was just accepted without much debate. That's why I wrote. I, 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 I try not to be involved in too many of these things because I'm retired, right? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I want younger generations to fight this fight or whatever fight uh, and I was editor uh, of The Age in those seven years during the, the Second Intifada. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing more challenging than covering the Second Intifada, mm. not the Gaza Wars, not anything. Uh, when you consider what was happening both in the territories and particularly uh, in Israel in terms of the suicide bombings, yeah. uh, there was nothing more difficult to cover. Now, no one can point to my coverage, our coverage, the ages coverage of that and say I was nobbled in any way by any lobby group or anyone lobbying me. Uh, I listen to lobbyists. I always listen to lobbyists. I listen to politicians that called me and said, you're a disgrace. What are you doing? Sack this person, right? Yeah. I listened to them. I didn't tell them, you know, go away. But I never did what they asked. But I did listen, and because you have to listen, because they may be making an argument, they may be telling you something that will make you think, well, maybe I made a mistake here, maybe this wasn't right. And I wanted to make the point that Lyon didn't speak to me. He said he spoke to 23 editors, right? Yeah. 
uh, uh, didn't speak to me, didn't speak to Peter Frey. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't name the ones he's, he's spoken to, the three or four, actually re- reject his thesis. So who are the others? Who, who are these people? Yeah. Why didn't he speak to me? Why didn't he speak to Frey, right? Yeah. I would have thought it would have been pretty interesting to speak to me. I was the only Jewish editor uh, who was involved with uh, uh, covering the Middle East, right? So yeah. it would have been a great thing to speak to me, uh, I would have thought. Was I um, lobbied? How did the lobby operate with me? Anyway, that's why I wrote the piece, right? Yes. That's why I wrote the piece, because I think that just accepting this thesis is dangerous. I think it's a mistake. Dangerous for journalism. Not, I'm not talking about yeah. dangerous for the Jews or for whatever. No, no. Journalism, because if you accept the thesis that a lobby group like this can actually chill and distort the coverage of an issue like this. What other lobby groups are out there chilling and and, uh, and distorting the coverage of whatever? Climate change, for instance. Yes. Or, you know, I mean, to make the argument, to make the argument that the so-called Jewish lobby is the most powerful in the country, more powerful than um, uh, the mining lobby, for instance. Yes. Uh, more powerful than the drug companies, more powerful than, well, it's an absurdity. It truly is. So it needs to be examined. Are we really, we journalists, are we really so susceptible to lobbying that editors would fall over themselves to tame their coverage? I mean, seriously, this is an absurd proposition. Unless you believe the proposition that somehow the Jews are uniquely powerful. No, it is ludicrous. You've actually preempted my next question, which was going to be about the time of your editorship of The Age. So thank you for getting in at that time. Michael Gawenda, many thanks for joining us on the Chaim and for providing our audience with an informed, critical analysis of a book that claims a powerful pro-Israel lobby influences reporting on Israel in Australia. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, what can one say other than many thanks again to Senator David Van, Jamie Himes, Peter Wertheim and Michael Gawenda for joining us on Lachheim with all their accurate, on-point perspectives of the Australian national broadcaster, the ABC. And from my perspective, it's the dishonest, only hostile to Israel, ergo anti-Semitic ABC. I have never seen an accurate, honest report from any of the ABC's foreign correspondents based in Jerusalem. Never. I can't see how any Jew who has any pride in being a Jew could offer any support or be associated with the ABC. By the way, the excellent Honest Reporting website only yesterday ran an item headlined Australian Broadcasting Corporation sanitises semen smuggling operation by jailed Palestinian terrorists. (laughs) It looks like things continue to be a bit stiff for the poor, poor Palestinians even in jail. Okay, no doubt there'll be more venting about the ABC during 2022. So it's time to sign off. We'll be back next week with the third instalment of the Lachaim Summer Series, which will all be about community here on 92.3 FM 3ZZZ. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. If you'd like to check out any of our programs or podcasts from 2021, simply Google Anchor Lachaim to Life Programs and Podcasts 
or go to the Jewish Life page on the Social Blueprint Jewish Resources website. All the links are there. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour is 3pm on Friday and the Yiddish Hour 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at L'Chaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team L'Chaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel, and Jeff Deegan.